the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? Welcome to What a Life with Paul Batura. Paul is a best-selling author, writer, Fox News contributor, and vice president of communications at Focus on the Family. This is a show about the extraordinary value of every life. It's a show about movers, shakers, and culture shapers. And now, here's your host, Paul Batura. Well, thanks for the introduction, Dr. Bill. Welcome to the show. Well, are you beginning to get into the Christmas spirit yet? I know it's just the first week of Advent, but the Christmas trees have already been up at Costco for months. In fact, if your Costco is like ours here in Colorado Springs, maybe the trees are gone by now. They're actually starting to showcase the barbecues and the deck chairs and the patio umbrellas. But thankfully, despite the pull and push of retail, we still have time to slow down and enjoy the Christmas season. There's no need to rush it. My guest today has just the perfect project to help you make that happen. His name is Max Lucado. Yes, the Max Lucado, the pastor, the preacher, the writer, and the film producer. Max is the longtime pastor of Oak Hills Church in San Antonio, Texas, since 1988, in fact. Now, Max has famously said that when he sits down to prepare a sermon, he asks himself this question, what can I say on Sunday that will still matter on Monday? That's a great question. Today, Pastor Max is joining us to discuss his latest project. It's not a book, though. It's a Christmas event coming to a theater near you. It's called Because of Bethlehem, and it's a Christmas show featuring star-studded performances from CeCe Winans, Matthew West, Ann Wilson, Matt Marr, and Evan Kraft, and of course, uh, Max Lucado. It's a Fathom event, which means it's only going to be in theaters for a limited run, December 5th, 6th, and 7th. That's this week, so you're going to want to get your tickets quickly. Because the good part about theaters now is that the seats are wide and they're comfortable and they recline, but there's only so many of them. It's a lot smaller, so get your tickets quickly. Uh, Pastor Max Lucado, welcome to the show. You are so kind to have me on the program. What an honor. Thank you, and uh, Merry Christmas to you and all your listeners. Well, thank you. Merry Christmas to you. And before we get into discussing the Fathom event and and broader conversation that I'm hoping to have with you. I just I want to tell you something personal here. I uh, owe you a lot, and I say that because um, my wife and I have been married for twenty, almost twenty three years. Uh, I met her at Focus on the Family, and uh, when she joined me, she had come out of a very difficult season in her life. She had had a marriage that kind of went kerplooey, an abusive uh, spouse years earlier, and she read your book. During seminary that she was in uh, the traveling light book. And she said Mm -hmm. that was like a a life preserver for her at that time in her life. And it really it really provided her with that bridge that she needed to recover and to to move on. And I just want to personally thank you for ministering to her that way. Well, that's an honor. Sometimes we just need that, don't we? Uh, Sometimes we just need a a, a word of encouragement, whether it comes through a a friend, a neighbor, a book, uh, or or a song, or a sermon. 
Uh, we just need that. And every single one of us, I can think of occasions in my life where the right message was just what I needed. Not not to, you know, take all my problems away, but but just to, you know, help me get up the next morning mm-hmm. and, and get on with life. And so I'm, I'm happy to hear that. And I'm, I'm thankful. Well, um, I'm glad I'm glad I could tell you that. And uh, you are the king of encouragement. That is sort of your your hallmark of your <laughs> uh, ministry. Well. Thank you. How long have you been married? Did you say 20 years? Oh, it's just almost, it'll be 23 years this summer. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations. Well, thank you. I know wonderful. you. you wonderful. Wonderful. You, um, I'm nothing compared to you and Danell. Is it Danellen? Yeah. Yeah. Dinalyn. Dinalyn. I know it's a different looking name and it's hard to pronounce, but Dinalyn. We've been, we're closing in on um, 40, is it 42 or 43? We married in 81. Uh, so we've we've been at a little longer than you have. Uh, we now have uh, uh, several grandchildren. In fact, uh, she is away from home today uh, because we have a, a relative newborn, uh, seven week old, and so she's helping take care of the little boy uh, so mom and dad can get some rest. Uh, and we have uh, we have an eight year old grandchild, a five year old. I uh, have a three year old uh, foster granddaughter and then another grandchild on the way. Oh, so we're really exciting. It's a wonderful, wonderful season of life for us. That's wonderful. That's great. Well, I'm curious, how does an author, a pastor, uh, you know, you've, you've obviously written so many books over almost 50 or maybe more than 50 now, but how did the, this special show coming to theaters near you uh, come about because of Bethlehem? Yeah, well, thank you for letting me talk about it. Again, it is uh, uh, coming up December 5th, 6th, and 7th. It's in theaters, which makes it unique, and I think it makes it wonderfully inviting because some people, you know, they don't want to go to church, and so Hmm. uh, a movie theater event is is perfect for them. Uh, We were approached to do this by Fathom Events and and K-Love, uh, to, who combined to come to me and they asked if I'd be interested in, in taking some of the messages from a book I'd written entitled Because of Bethlehem. And they, they partnered up with some wonderful artists that we'll all recognize, Matthew West, C.C. Winans, Ann Wilson, Matt Marr, Evan Kraft. And together we put an evening of music and message uh, in the same uh, presentation recorded in a beautiful setting in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I, th- I think it's an a inspirational event. It's an encouraging event. And, you know, and for some it'll be informational mm. uh, because not everybody understands the beauty of Christmas and why Christmas matters. And so we try to be very clear in explaining the, the message of Christmas uh, and so, of course, when we put the program together uh, uh, several months ago, we had no idea that the whole world was going to feel like it was in such a tailspin as it is now. And so I'm very grateful to, to have an evening of encouragement to present to people because uh, so much of our time is spent hearing such bad news mm. that I think we could all use a big dose of really, really good news oh. this December. Yeah, we sure can. I was so excited to see this because I grew up, I grew up in New York, and my parents would often tune in to the, you know, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir Christmas special, which they do a good job there. They always have, um, 
you know, the great artists and they have great narrators. And, and I thought, why leave this to only the LDS church? I think what you're doing mm-hmm. is something that will appeal and, and entertain. And as you say, inform, uh, just scores of people. It's, it's fantastic that you're doing it. Did you get it? Is it pre-recorded or will you be doing it in a, in a more live setting? We recorded it in a live setting. Uh, we have, um, I think that I think the uh, venue seats about 800 people and it was full. And so there's wonderful audience interaction uh, captured in front of a live audience um, and uh, and and uh, in a beautiful, beautiful set. We're so very grateful for the hard work that the production team put in to to make it uh, such a such a quality event. And I and I, I think I think there's nobody who would uh, you you don't have to risk inviting your friends to it and then being embarrassed because it's poor quality. Mm. <laughs> it really is top notch, and and I think that anybody who attends will walk away encouraged and blessed and happy that they that they brought their friends to attend attend it with them. Yeah. You know, there's nothing like Christmas music, right? Just, oh. Everybody loves Christmas music. And when C.C. Winans sings, when Matt Marr sings, when Matthew West sings, when these folks with such amazing talents open their mouth and they, they sing songs, some of, some of the songs we know, uh, some of them were written just for this event. Mm. Uh, some of them are, are, are classic. Some of them are brand new. Uh, but regardless, they're, they're songs that uh, will touch the heart of hearts of people. And I pray the message will as well. It's just the simple message of why God became a baby, uh, why he walked this earth, uh, what the first advent tells us about the second advent. So all of these are wonderful messages of grace and encouragement that uh, I think I, I, I really believe we really need to hear this Christmas. Yeah, boy, music is so emotive. I mean, I, I just pulled out my Frank Sinatra CD of Christmas music, and I was listening to it in my car last night. And it br- <laughs> it brings me back to my mom and dad in the kitchen and listening, uh, you know, the, yep. leading up yep. to Christmas. I have the book you referenced in my hand. It's a beautiful red and white book with the red Christmas tree cover because of Bethlehem. The subtitle, Love is Born, Hope is Here. Of course, people can still get this book. This is a wonderful um, read. It's, it's of course, uh, um, you, the message you're kind of communicating in the show, but then there's even a workbook in there for people to kind of w- walk through. Um, Max, I'd love to go back to the beginning. This show is called What a Life, so we're going to look at, if you're open to it, I'd love to talk about your life. And uh, from what I can tell, uh, all your writing and all your preaching may very well go back to a chest of books in your bedroom as a young boy. Can you talk about that chest? Yeah. That's real perceptive on your part. Uh, that's, but that's true. That's true. Yeah. I, uh, I grew up always loving books, but the earliest memory I have of books uh, is a chest uh, that my mom and dad placed at the foot of a double bed, double wide bed that my brother and I shared. And uh, that particular chest uh, contained a, a variety of, of books. And one of those books was a Christmas story. And uh, I can I can still see in my mind's eye uh, that image of Mary uh, at the manger 
with the manger empty and the baby in her arms, and she's looking down at the at the baby Jesus, and uh, it's a it's a beautiful beautiful memory that I have mm. and that I'll, I'll never forget. And I, I don't know if that's when my love of books began, but I couldn't read those books often enough. I can actually remember. Uh, Taking, even though it's time to be asleep, I can recall that uh, I would get under the covers and we had an electric blanket and that electric <laughs> blanket control had a little light. And if I held the light of that control right over the words, I could I could read in the dark. <laughs> and I can remember doing that. It's probably I was sleep deprived as a child because I would I would read those books over and over again. Four. And my first uh, my initial introduction to Christmas uh, came in one of those bedtime book time situations. Uh, I began asking my dad Christmas questions. And I remember, I think in the book, I said he he would always say, "Boys, Christmas is always about Christ." Mm. Um, such a simple answer, but it's really the true answer. It's so easy for Christmas to be about anything else these days, uh, and we have to make an intentional, a deliberate choice to make Christmas all about Christ. Yeah, we're talking with Max Lucado. He's the author of "Because of Bethlehem." But uh, more uh, prominently, we're talking about his Fathom event coming up December 5th, 6th, and 7th, entitled Because of Bethlehem. And Max, you're talking about your dad, Jack Lucado, and your mom, Thelma. Uh, You had a very close relationship with them, I presume. Tell me a little bit about that. You're growing up in the oil fields of Texas, working class parents, hardworking Mm -hmm. parents. Uh, How do you characterize that childhood? I would say very happy. Uh, it was it was um, very blue collar. Uh, Dad built the house I grew up in, uh, at least the first one. We did move later into a house they purchased. Uh, Dad was very uh, very much a handyman, very industrious. He worked for Exxon in the oil field, and he worked the day shift. And my mom would work the evening shift. And so our uh, mom would um, be, at, be at home when we went off to school in the morning. Dad would have already left. And then when my brother and I came home after elementary school, uh, Dad would be there. And Mom would have gone to work at the hospital. She worked from 3 to 11. And so uh, I didn't think much about it. Of course, as an adult, I realized that was really sacrificial. Uh, for them to be uh, apart from each other, but they wanted one parent to be there when we left and another parent to be there when we came home. Mm. And then also, that's how they, you know, provided. Uh, They took both salaries uh, to make ends meet. Um, Dad was a very uh, happy person, fun to be with, uh, full of jokes, uh, and he he, uh, had a terrific laugh. His eyes would crinkle up and his his body would shake, and he loved to laugh. Mm. My mom was the serious of the two. She was very responsible. Uh, She was more of the disciplinarian, and she could be a bit somber. Uh, She was raised in a a cotton uh, patch family where she had to pick cotton and was never able to, I don't think, finish middle school, much less high school. 
So they were both raised as depression people out of the depression. And uh, that followed us around all of our lives. Uh, they were very uh, frugal in everything they did. Uh, Dad, Dad was the son of a, a man who was prone to drink. Uh, and he grew up in a family where a lot of the siblings drank. Uh, but Dad became a Christian in the oil field. And uh, he began taking us to church when we were young. And uh, uh, he, he uh, was really strict when it came to alcohol. And as I grew up and got into alcohol, that created some, some tense moments. Uh, but but uh, when I became a Christian at the age of 20, uh, the Lord helped me put that behind me. And Dad and I had a wonderful, wonderful uh, time until he passed away uh, from ALS when he was 69. Mom went on to live for another 20 years, uh, and we enjoyed having her living with us for the last, I think, five years of her life here in San Antonio. Mm. So that's a kind of a winding, long answer to your no, question. No, that, I think so that... They, they, they were wonderful people. Yeah, I mean, we're always a, a, common, a combination, I suppose, of our parents are you closer in temperament to your mom or your dad? My dad, my dad, yeah. Dad was a fun-loving guy. He loved to, even though we didn't have a lot, he he had enough to take us on vacations. I know you're there in Colorado Springs. I, I grew up in West Texas, and Colorado was our favorite destination. Hmm. Uh, I thought every kid grew up going on camping trips to Colorado. I just thought that was requirement for being a human <laughs> being. And we would we would go to Estes Park. You're familiar with sure. that. Oh, uh, sure. We we would we would go even up into. Um, uh, oh, I'm forgetting the names of some of the parks. I should remember them. But regardless, we'd we'd uh, take two or three weeks vacation and camp, uh, and we'd stayed in tents. You know, we he owned a big tent. He bought it in an Army Navy supply, and we we would uh, put that tent up and sleep on cots or sleep on the ground. No happier memories do I have than those memories of going to Colorado on vacations. Uh, of course, when you grow up in West Texas, everything looks beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that... But Colorado's beautiful regardless of where you're from. Isn't that something? It's such a great reminder to parents who are struggling to give their kids the best vacation at Disneyland and the hotels. And, and boy, kids just want to be with their mom and dad, and they love to be out in God's creation. And it can be very simple, and you remember those memories and... Cherish them. Isn't that the truth? Yeah, we would even uh, we we didn't even have a trailer to pull. I mean, Dad would take the tent, uh, and the back the trunk was full of everything else. But he would take the tent, and he would put it over the floorboard of the back seat. Now I don't think you could do that legally these days. But my brother and I sat, you know, cross legged uh, with. Or lying down because we didn't have, we didn't have a place to you know we didn't have a, a foot well yeah. to put our feet in and so that that was a fond memory too we thought that made the car even more special <laughs> so very simple very simple uh, simple home simple uh, youth nothing fancy usually we bought our clothes at. Um, at discount places, sometimes even use clothing, but that was okay. I, I don't recall ever feeling shortchanged. Or mm. uh, we always had food on the table, had a warm place to sleep at night, went to public schools, um, and then went to church. Church was a huge part of our growing up years. Um, I was a rebel 
during my teenage years, but I don't fault my parents. I really don't fault the church. I, it, it was just that sin nature. It reared its ugly head and, and uh, became a, a rebel, a scoundrel. Uh, but the Lord's grace was was merciful. And and um, like I say, when I was about 20 years old, I I, um, I didn't think God could forgive a jerk like me. But my friends con- convinced me that he could. And that was um, that was a, that was the turning point for me. Yeah. So when you would you say you were about 20 when you made your faith your own? Yes, sir. What what happened? Um, uh, please stop me if I get too boring. No, I can this get is great. Winded, but what happened is uh, I began uh, I began drinking in in high school, and uh, I mean really drinking, not just on weekends but weeknights. Um, I would uh, put away a six pack on a Friday night and a six pack on a Saturday night, and I just I was I got into fights. I almost got in trouble with the law. I was disrespectful of girls. I was uh, disrespectful of the school and certainly dishonest with my parents. I had hustled up a fake ID so I could go into nightclubs, and I wouldn't tell my parents that. And, of course, they knew what I was doing. And so finally my dad, he, uh, my dad told me when I was a high school senior, he said, Son, um, if you want any help with college tuition, you have to go to a Christian college. Um, my friends were all going to state schools, and I intended to do the same. But but I heard him say, if I wanted help with college tuition, well, you know, I'm dumb, but I'm not stupid, and I wanted <laughs> help with college tuition. And so I ended up going to a small liberal arts college in West Texas, Abilene Christian College, it was called then. Now it's Abilene Christian University. Uh, and I will forever eternally be in debt to that school because that's where I was required to attend Bible class. And that's where I heard the story of Jesus through those Bible classes. And uh, that's it, it took two years for me to come to Christ. Uh, but listening to those classes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, uh, all four semesters, was enough to finally warm my heart. And uh, I, I, in March of my sophomore year, uh, I came to Christ. And um uh, it was a very emotional moment for me, and uh, I, I knew that, that Christ had forgiven me for all my sins, and I believed that he had an eternal home waiting for me. And um, I've, I've stumbled since then, but I've never regretted that decision. Mm. It truly was a moment in which I was completely born again. Wow. Well, amen. And the world is grateful and very benefited from that decision. So you you had initially intended to go to law school after college yes, is that right mm-hmm. and well you've done your research my <laughs> friend how did, nobody knows that except a handful of people <laughs> well i like these things oh I, yeah you know my i always i, I kind of had the gift of gab i i i was on the debate team i gave speeches and and even though i was a scoundrel i i you know i could I could do, I could, I could articulate messages. I, my dad always said, you got a gift of gab, but I don't think he meant that as a compliment. And so I, I felt like, okay, I can be a lawyer. I can give speeches. So I, I didn't really have a direction in life. Uh, but, but if somebody asked me, I would say, yeah, I think I'm, I'm going to go to law school. Uh, when, when my heart was changed by Jesus at the age of, at the age of 20, I had to change peer groups because the guys I was running with had more influence over me than I had over them. 
And so I began running around with the guys that led a Bible study where I'm, where my heart was changed. And they were all training to be missionaries. Well, within a year, I thought uh, of becoming a Christian. I thought, I think I want to be a missionary. Mm. When, and lo and behold, I ended up going to seminary. Uh, I ended up going to South America for five years. In the, in the back of my mind, I thought, I'll probably come back and go to law school. And, and I, I, that would have been a wonderful choice. But by the time I came back from Brazil, I had discovered that I really liked to preach. And I really enjoyed writing. And so living in Brazil, I preached, although it was in Portuguese, and I began to write. And that's when the writing was born. Back in the 1980s, my first book came out in 1986, I believe. And, um, and, and it was well received. And so I just kept writing. And then I came back to the States and there was a church in San Antonio looking for a pastor. They took a chance on me because I'd never been a pastor of a stateside church. I was 33 years old. And uh, as you and I are having this conversation, I'm sitting in the church office <laughs> still here wow. after yeah. after all these years. And so that's uh, that's how the ministry began. That is an obedience in the in one direction. That is fantastic. We're, <laughs> we're talking with Max Lucado. I'm Paul Batura. This is What a Life Lessons from Legends. When we come back. Uh, I'd love to talk more about your uh, evolution as a writer and obviously as a pastor. We're talking about Max's new movie coming out December 5th, 6th, and 7th. Thanks for listening, and uh, hold on. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Paul Batura. This is What a Life, Lessons from Legends. And the legend we're talking with today is Pastor Max Lucado. He has a new uh, Fathom event, a new movie in theaters this week, December 5th, 6th, and 7th. It's because of Bethlehem. And uh, you need to get your tickets uh, right away because this is a limited release. You can go to fathomevents.com. And then uh, you should also, if you haven't uh, read the book, Because of Bethlehem, this is a fantastic uh, companion to the movie and a wonderful uh, uh, resource for your family here in the Advent and Christmas season. So, Max, thanks for Thanks for hanging on. We've been talking about um, your uh, life and talking about uh, getting through college. And you actually sold books door to door to help pay for the school. I know your dad and mom helped you, but you actually knocked on doors. What kind of books were you selling? (laughs) Yeah, college tuition was a 50-50 deal. 50-50. Daddy did 50%. I had to come up with 50%. And a guy came to our campus once and said, if anybody really wants to make a lot of money this summer, meet me at this room at such and such time. And I was the first one there because I needed the money. Uh, And off I went to uh, be trained to uh, sell books door to door. His company was called or is called Southwestern. We had a week of sales school, and then we were sent uh, somewhere in the country. I ended up in Dalton, Georgia, and I was all by myself. I didn't have any friends. I had uh, a couple of guys who went with me, and then at the last minute, they changed their mind and left sales school. So I went by myself, and I roomed with a guy from, I think he was from Baylor University, and uh, we'd knock doors, and we'd start at 8 a.m. and knock our last door at 9 p.m. Mm. and knock doors all day. And you know what, Paul? People don't like door-to-door salesmen. I wish <laughs> they had told me that before I went to all the way across the country. Yeah, I mean— But uh, it, it was a, a learning experience for sure. 
I mean, figuring out how to write something that people want to read and then how to speak in a way that people want to listen, that's a skill and that's a gift. I'm curious if there is a correlation between your ability to sell and your ability to sell the gospel. I mean, it's not that transactional, of course, the Lord and the Holy Spirit. (laughs) But is there, did you see some of the uh, talents or some of the tricks of the trade that you picked up uh, on that uh, summer job? Has it played itself out in your pastoral career? Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, I, I picked up some habits that I had to break. I'm not proud of. You know, they teach you in sales to always be trying to close the deal. Well, that's not a good way to have relationships. But also they teach you to to uh, be patient, to be patient uh, and to, and to work, you know, to, to knock on the doors and to, and to manage your time well. And so some of those, uh, abilities, uh, I've, I've really treasured, hmm. uh, you develop a lot of self-confidence, uh, because you have to, you get, you know, let your, you let your skin get thick and, uh, in fact, sometimes I think I was more confident back then uh, <laughs> than I am even even today. Uh, but it was it, my my good friend always said it, I wouldn't give a million dollars for that experience, but I wouldn't do it again for a million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great! Because it wasn't easy work. But I tell you what, I did make enough money so that when I was back at school. Uh, when all my other friends had to take on part-time jobs, I didn't. So it was worth it. Yeah. Now, I presume more people have read your books than heard your preaching, but, you know, just the nature of what, how you're able to minister yeah. to people. Um, when a preacher uh, is up in front of an uh, audience, do you notice people no- nodding off? And what does that do to you? And how do you respond? Yes, 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 I do. I have, I have an antenna up. And if I see, if I sense that I'm losing the audience or if they're dozing off, uh, I've, I'll increase the volume. Hmm. I'll walk around. I, I have a pretty good memory for stories, and I have the, I, I can pull a story out of my, you know, my hip pocket because stories have a way of, uh, you, you, you know, just that phrase. Hey, let me tell you a story, or let me illustrate that with this point, and people perk up, hmm. perk up. So. So I yeah I have an allergy to a to the audience that's not paying attention. I'll do anything to keep their attention, <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I I think uh, if if somebody's nodding off, I'm going to do my best to wake them back up. That's great, and I mean Jesus was the great parable parable teacher, right? He did it. Uh, yeah, and it's not just yeah. a reason coincidental that he did that because he knew people would uh, take note. Now you're your books, I mean, you're prolific. You've written so many books, and many of us who write, you and I have something in common. Uh, this may be the only thing in a literary form you and I have in common, but uh, my, I wrote a few, I've written books, and my first one was with Tyndale, as was yours. The only uh-huh. only problem yeah. is you've, you've sold about 145 million more books than I have, but uh, <laughs> your books tend to come from sermons, a sermon series that you've put together. Um, Tell me how, you know, the first book came about, I know you were on the mission field, right? And you were kind of writing a newsletter. Is that right? Yes, sir. I was. I had moved to Brazil and I was responsible for writing an article in a weekly newsletter. And uh, I only had like, if I recall, three or four inches worth of space on the page. So it had to be very concise. 
Uh, but I really enjoyed writing those. It was for a newsletter back in the U.S., even though I was in Brazil. Uh, and and uh, I, I decided to try to get another generation of use out of those. And, and I compiled all those articles in a manuscript. And like you say, uh, Tyndale House was so gracious, so gracious to to uh, take a chance on me. And we turned that uh, manuscript into a book. I did get 14 rejections, by the way. Uh-huh. I mailed I mailed the pub I mailed the manuscript out to a total of 15 publishers. Tyndale was just the last one to respond, and I'm thankful they responded positively because <laughs> I wouldn't have known where else to send it. You would have had a big bidding, was a, a bidding war. A bidding war yeah. would have ensued, right? <laughs> oh, that's My cool. next book also, I, well, I was in Brazil from 83 to 88, and I wrote On the Anvil. I wrote No Wonder They're Calling the Savior. I wrote God Came Near, and I wrote the good portion of the next book called Six Hours, One Friday. So most, uh, so I had written, uh, I wrote three and a half books while we lived in Brazil. And that was one of the reasons we moved back because the books uh, were doing well. And I realized that's, that's a ministry in and of itself. And it was hard, you know, Paul, to do everything in Portuguese and then write in English. Mm. And so that's when, that was one of the contributing factors that led us to think it would be a better a use of time, use of talent to come back to the States. Yeah. Now, many of us, we love your writing and we love your storytelling. One of the things those of us who are writers love is that you really write your own stuff. I mean, you don't have a yeah. collaborator. You don't have a ghostwriter. That's very important to you. Do you, let me ask you this. Maybe it's not a fair thing. This is like asking your favorite child, but do you prefer writing or preaching? Yeah. Yeah. you got me on that one. You got me. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I love preaching and I love writing. I don't think I could choose between the two. Mm. Uh, thanks for letting me uh, say I don't use a ghostwriter. I've always been very, very particular. And uh, I think I could almost edit my own books because I, I, I do a lot of self-editing. But, of course, I do end up using an editor. An editor my editors have been awesome. Um, I think if you pressed me, I would choose writing just because books, you know, have such a long life. Uh, and a sermon has a great life, but but it's short-lived by comparison. You know, we began this broadcast with discussion about your wife and a book called Traveling Light. But that came out, I want to say, in sometime in the mid-1990s. Mm. And here we are talking about it. I would say the sermons that I preached in the mid-1990s have, have long since been forgotten, or they might be used to put people to sleep <laughs> surgery. I don't know. Well, how, uh, can we talk about the process by which you write? So you, you've got to mm-hmm. come up with the big idea, right? I mean, that's the I guess that's how you start. Yes, sir. Uh-huh. And then where do you go from there? Yes, sir. Well, um, for example, right now I'm finishing up a sermon series at our church, uh, and it's called What's Next, and it's a series of lessons on end times. It has to do with everything from, uh, you know, the uh, the the uh, Battle of Armageddon to understanding certain prophecies to uh, the Antichrist. To I really tried to tackle some some challenging topics, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So I've got all those sermons done. 
I've got two more to preach, actually, but for basically they're done. So now I'm taking those sermons and I'm turning them into chapters. Uh, and that means I need to tighten them up. I need to uh, uh, make sure that I, uh, the stories work because sometimes things work with the ear that don't really work with the eye. Mm. So I will tighten all of those up and I will read it and read it and reread it. Uh, most of my books I reread or rewrite at least 40 times, sometimes 50, just to tighten them up, tighten them up. My goal is to take out any unnecessary phrase or word. And then I send it to my editor, and my editor will spend a month with it, and then we'll present it to the publisher, and the publisher will say whether this is a book they want or not. And they've always said yes so far, but I want them to have that freedom to say no. And and if they say yes, then I'll take it another two or three months and then my editor will work on it another month. And and by the time it's all said and done, it's about a year's uh, worth of work. And uh, the last thing we do is my editor, my assistant, and I meet in San Antonio. We all get together, and we read uh, the book out loud. And sometimes the publisher will come down from Nashville, and we'll read each chapter out loud and, and, and sitting around a table and uh, – We'll always hear things that we didn't see. So there's something about hearing a chapter that helps you tighten it up. And then only when we're all at peace with each chapter will we sign off on it. Mm. And that takes about three or four days. And then once that's done, uh, off to the publisher it goes. And that's the last I'd, last thing I have to do with it. It'll still go to a copy editor who will... Uh, you know, make sure our grammar is correct, our punctuation is correct. But by then, I, they don't need me anymore. And so I'll take a little break and then go off to the next project. Yeah. The voice you're hearing is the New York Times bestselling author, Max Lucado. Uh, he is the uh, producer of a new film that's coming out to uh, theaters near you this week, uh, December 5th, 6th, and 7th. Get your tickets at fathomevents.com. It's entitled Because of Bethlehem, obviously a Christmas show. But boy, Max, the TLC that you put into your work uh, is evident, and I love to hear that you read it out loud. I I remember hearing one of my favorite authors is David McCullough, the late David McCullough, the historian. Yeah. yeah. And he says that he writes yeah. he writes as much. He's since passed just recently, but he said he he wrote as much for the ear as he did for the eye. And uh, mm. that that's that's an interest. I I do the same thing when I write. I like to read out loud. It, maybe I like to hear my own words, but it's it does help. It, it does help, doesn't it? It's um, and I guess since you've preached it, uh, even more so. Um, but boy, what a what a arduous and a lot of love you put into your your projects. That's that's really uh, fascinating to hear. Um, so this you is you know, David McCullough has a great quote on writing. Paul, you've probably heard it. He he said, "Good writing is clear thinking." Mm. It's just a simple phrase, but it, it, it really is because it's hard to think clearly. Uh, it's hard to put thoughts in a sequential fashion that makes sense to somebody who's not been inside your brain. Yeah. And I think that's why rewriting helps because if you when you write it the first time, it makes perfect sense. But you know this as a writer. You come back a week later and you read it and say, wait a second. What was my thought process there? Because we tend to skip the linkage, the necessary um, linkage between the ideas. Hmm. And so good writing goes back to to help the reader 
follow that clear thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and sometimes people will send me manuscripts and ask me to read them. And I, I don't do it very often just because it's so time consuming. But on the occasion that I do, the one thing that I notice is that sometimes people assume something. They assume that I, 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 there, there needs to be another uh, bit of tissue between one paragraph to the next, to a transition phrase or a statement. And you pick up on that when you read it out loud, don't you, Paul? You sure do. And my old boss, Jim Dobson, who started Focus on the Family, used to talk about it in terms of like pickets on a fence. Um, that's how he, he kind of painted a word picture. But someone once told me that easy, is it easy reading is hard writing and uh, hard writing is, or hard, great. yeah, hard reading is uh, easy writing, I suppose. But okay, so can we talk a little bit about Christmas since we're we're talking about your your great film that's coming out? Um, I've always wondered about something. You kind of touched on it in the book because of Bethlehem. You talked about Herod. You know, the obviously he's the villain in the Christmas story. As a kid, I always wondered: Did Herod not see the star? Was he blinded? Uh, and not allowed to see it, or was he too lazy? There's no—I know there's not a there's not a line in scripture that yeah. tells us. But what what are your thoughts yeah. on that? You know, he could have seen it. I mean, why not? Yeah, I I don't. You're right. There's nothing in scripture that would tell us that he saw it and then disregarded it or didn't see it. But I can't help but think the wise men came, telling him the reason they were there. And they, uh, the star appeared over Jesus in Bethlehem. So I, I, I just think that the Herod, the issue that Herod was battling was jealousy. He was jealous. He couldn't stand the thought that there would be another king on earth. And so he, his pride got to him. And rather than worship him, he sought out. He set out to kill him. Mm. So maybe he saw the star and disregarded it. Maybe he just didn't pay attention. But I think that jealousy is what did him in. Yeah. Well, I, that, I'll take that. I think that's right. Another thing I wanted to ask you about in your in your book, um, you have a very touching section. Um, you know, there are people listening to us who, you know, we're, we're excited about Christmas. We're looking forward to it. There are people who have some pretty heavy burdens that they're carrying now. And you wrote about going through a very difficult time with your family with your daughter suffering a miscarriage, if I recall. Was that, he, um, is that right? Was, yeah, yeah. The last place you want to be on uh, Christmas season, during Christmas season, is in a uh, an emergency room. Uh, she had kept the pregnancy a secret. Uh, she wanted to surprise us on Christmas, and uh, and she did surprise us. She called us crying because she had suffered a miscarriage. And uh, so we spent a good portion of the Christmas holidays with her in the hospital as she was recovering from that. And many people can relate. You know, there's something about December that magnifies our emotions. If you're lonely, you'll be lonelier in December. You know, if you're afraid, you'll be more fearful. If you're anxious, you'll be more anxious. There's just something about December that um, that brings our emotions to a more intense level. And for that reason, I think more than ever, we need to turn back to the manger during Christmas and realize that Jesus was born during a stressful time, during a fearful time, during a time of global calamity and global anxiety. And uh, that's what we're feeling these days. And so my prayer for those who are listening 
and for friends of those who are listening who are going through a hard time, is that we would turn back to to the story of the manger and realize that the first Christmas was a tough Christmas. It was hard. Mm -hmm. Uh, Joseph and Mary didn't have a place to stay. They were far from home. Uh, they They were traveling. It was a hard time. Yet through that hard time, the greatest gift ever given to the world arrived. And I believe that still happens even today. Yeah. You know, my wife and I have the privilege. We adopted three boys. Um, they're now eight, 18, 13, and 11. And uh, obviously, I resonate uh, with Joseph. Joseph being an adoptive dad, right? He's his right. Body. And mm-hmm. uh, I've thought about that, of course, in terms of the, uh, you know, we, we talk about Christmas, the silent night, and the, all the trappings are so beautiful. It must have been pretty chaotic, if you think about it. Mm. I mean, yeah. I get, and you're kind are of your, alluding to that. Are your boys siblings? Are they from different families? All, di- all different families, yeah. And uh, mm. each have a unique story. Good for you. We're very, very blessed. Good it's for you. The joy, the joy of our That's life. That's beautiful. Let me read. If, That's beautiful. On your, well, thank you. Your book, um, the next year, I guess it was, Jenna was pregnant again, and you wrote this very touching note to her, uh, to your future or your grandchild, You said, dear, dear child, we are so excited to welcome you into the world. We are waiting for you. Your parents have prepared a place for you. You have grandparents, aunts, and uncles ready to shower you with love. We cannot wait to spend time loving you and showing you your wonderful new home. And how old is that child now? Uh, That's Rosie. She's eight years old. Yeah, the the miscarriage was, was, was brutal. But um, but within a year, we had little baby, or at least we had the baby Rosie in mommy's tummy by on the next Christmas. And um, and she's just a delight. She is. Well, in the remaining time, Max, I wanted to ask you, too, you're, you're not, yeah, I know you're approaching 70, I think. Uh, you're yes, not, sir. You're not quite as old as Simeon. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but you have a great story in that book about, I think it was the, the telling of the the story, but about you as a kid spending your Christmas break digging ditches in the cold. Mm. What, do, what do you remember about that? That is a great story. That is a great story. You know, during Christmas break, as a as a kid, well, as a high schooler, uh, we worked in the oil fields to make money. And I I know Paul, you're there in Colorado Springs, and so you you know what a winter can feel like. But I will say. I don't know if I've ever been as cold as I was in a West Texas winter Mm. because there's just simply nothing to block the wind. And we would get dropped off in the oil field, we being the crew, and we'd be dropped off with uh, all the layers of clothing we could wear with our lunch buckets. And uh, we would be told, you know, dig this ditch and uh, somebody will pick you up at 5 p.m. So we would work in that wind. It was so cold, so brutal cold. And we would dig and dig and dig all day and then break for lunch, then dig and dig and dig. But about 4.30 or 5, we'd we'd start looking for that pickup truck because we were 20 or 30 miles from the nearest town. I mean, it's not like we were just down the street. I mean, we were out in the middle of nowhere. There was no way we could have walked home. Yeah. And we would look and look and look. And I recall one particular time the sun was setting, the wind was getting colder, the wind, the the the, the air was getting colder, and we we were just just shivering. And um, 
we climbed out of the ditch because it was getting dark, and we said, surely they're going to pick us up. Surely they're going to pick us up. And finally, in the distance, we could see the bouncing lights of the headlight, uh, the headlights of that pickup truck that had been sent to get us. And turns out there was a miscommunication about who was to pick us up. And it was well seven or eight at night before they finally picked us up. And we were so glad when that truck showed up. Mm. And I compare it to looking for the return, looking for Christ, looking for him to come. You know, we were searching. We were so ready to be picked up. And uh, and I think Christ wants us to live in that in that posture. He knows this is a harsh world. He knows it's cold. He knows how challenging it can be. He will come at the right time. And it's our privilege, our posture to keep looking, to just keep looking. And and before we know it, we'll see the, the familiar lights of, of our Heavenly Father coming, and He'll take us home. Oh, what an encouraging place to land. And uh, boy, I hope uh, listeners can feel the, the passion and can feel um, the heart in your voice. Your project is called Because of Bethlehem. It's a live Christmas show. It's uh, this week. It's December 5th, 6th, and 7th. And if people want tickets, they can go to fathomevents.com. It's going to be in a theater near them. Um, your book, Because of Bethlehem, Love is Born, Hope is Here, is available, uh, of course, as are so many other books. Uh, you can't do better than to load up on Max Lucado books for Christmas. And uh, there are many to choose from, children's books, uh, devotional books, all kinds of things. Uh, Max, if people want to reach you and sign up for an email or your message, where do they go? MaxLocato.com. Just MaxLocato.com. And I would really be remiss if I didn't thank you and the entire Focus on the Family group. You know, I go way back with Focus, and um, I do know Dr. Dobson, hold him in such high regard, and I know many others that have either worked or continued to work at that your wonderful ministry. So, so thank you. My my name is on that long, long list of people who have been blessed by Focus on the Family. Well, we've been blessed by you, and uh, thank you, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, my friend. Thanks for listening to What a Life with Paul Batura. Let him know what you're thinking. Follow Paul on Twitter at Paul Batura, or you can reach out to him on email at paul at paulbatura.com. Most importantly, live a life that emulates the admonition of the Apostle Paul, whose teachings are the inspiration for this show. Writing to believers at Philippi, Paul urged them, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We'll see you next time on What a Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.